So we're continuing with this exploration of what's called the three poisons or the three defilements or the three kalashas. These are kind of the three root things that keep us kind of the overt expression of suffering. So there's greed that we talked about last month. There's hatred, which we've already had a couple of talks on. And then next month will be delusion. So these three all really work together to create this experience of suffering and how we, we act in the world. Now, before I dive into hatred as a particular topic to explore, I want to step back a second and just look, look at all three of these roots together to see how they work as a, as a unit. Because we can say that greed is trying to overcome a sense of lack, a sense of deficiency. Something is, is lacking in our experience. And so what we're the object of our greed, whether it's an possession or experience or another person or whatever it might be, we think that's going to fulfill that deeper lack. And we can say hatred, on the other hand, is more around separation. There's a sense of creating separation, of alienation, getting rid of what we don't want. It can be that, that hatred of getting rid of this person that we don't like. We're creating a sense of distance. So how do these two relate to each other? How does that sense of lack that's driven, that drives hatred, and that sense of separation, which drives hate, uh, sorry, I said that backwards. How does that sense of, 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 of lack that drives greed, and how does that sense of separation drive hatred? How do they relate? And what about delusion? Well, my favorite Dharma lens, favorite way to kind of look at Dharma and, and make sense of it is around this sense of self around non-self, around anatta, and how that seems to be a core piece of what creates this cycle of suffering. And we can see how this really makes these, all these make sense. Because greed creates that sense of separation, or that, sorry, that sense of self through the deficiency, through that lack. So we have that sense of insufficiency, that there's something lacking in me. I'm really well-defined. I really know who I am. I know what I want, what I need. And that greed is just driving that. But all along in the background, it's creating that sense of me. It's reinforcing it. It's, it's really the mechanism that makes it keep going. While hatred, on the other hand, creates that sense of self through separation, through not liking the other. It creates the other and makes the sense of me who's outside of that. It's a way of dividing things. Right? There's the people I like, the people I hate. There's the people that I feel resonant with and the people I feel are completely opposite of me. And I, I want to push them away, whether it's political or whatever way we, we create that sense of otherness. There's very subtle ways that this arises. Even within ourselves, how we create that sense of division. This is the part of me that I, I like and I appreciate. And there's this whole larger pile, perhaps, which I'm ashamed of, I which wish were not there. It creates a sense of separation, of two-ness. And at the core defilement, we could say, is really delusion. How delusion creates that sense of, of self, that belief in that sense of self, which keeps this whole mechanism going. Ultimately, this delusion is what drives greed and drives, drives hatred. It's, it's the mechanism behind it. Without that delusion in place, greed and hatred won't arise. So this sense of, of greed 
there's this, this insufficiency, this sense, the strong perspective that that comes from, the sense of hatred and all its different shades, all its different forms, permutations also really establishes that. Now, when delusion falls away, I mean, we are practicing a wisdom tradition. We're practicing meditation, not for the sole purpose of becoming calm and be able to navigate our lives more easily. That's, that's a huge bonus, right? It's very helpful. Maybe that's many, why many of us come to practice. But the ultimate reason, at least from the, the Dharma perspective, is to, to wake up, to, to become clear, to see through delusion. And when that delusion falls away, and we understand this sense of self is really an illusion, a conditioned thing that arises, we understand that indirectly, not, not through a concept, but through our direct immediate experience. We actually see the world from that perspective of non-self. There's no greed that arises because we feel completely sufficient. There's nothing that needs to be changed or altered or improved upon this moment. There's a perfection in how the moment actually is. This is one characteristic when we're viewing the world from non-self. And also there's no hatred that arises because there's not that sense of other. It doesn't make sense to hate something else because there's not a separation. We don't divide ourselves. We don't divide other people. That all starts to fall away. And of course it you know, falls away sometimes very completely, but often there's kind of kind of holdouts, if you will, that we have to bring back and really look at. So there's not a, a bypassing you know, around our own sense of, of self, our sense of self-worth, around you know, all the different ways we cause damage in, in the world through racism, through sexism, through any kind of making other. You can see how much pain there is in the world, how we are attacking those who are you know, LGBTQ, those who are people of color. That's all those, those ways of creating division. It's all coming from that sense of separation. It's this profound way we create suffering in the world. So we get a glimpse of this. We see it perhaps for a moment, perhaps it's more sustaining, but all of this starts to change that underlying momentum of delusion, it starts to fall away more and more until finally there's a shift that there's, it's a much more of a sustaining quality that we live from wisdom instead of this delusion. So this is the big picture of how greed, hatred, and delusion all work together. Now let's dive into the next one, into actual hatred, to see what this is all about. And let's do it as much with as much kindness as we can, which as much wisdom and compassion as possible. I think it's very important to not hate our hatred, not to bring that sense of hatred to what we're, what we're trying to observe. So I'm using hatred in a very broad scope, broad spectrum. So there's, from one hand, there's just that little bit of aversion, that friction with the moment to this outright, almost homicidal rage. All of this can be held under this expression of, of hatred. All has that basic inclination of pushing away, of denying, attacking what is what we don't want, what we don't like. Now, acknowledging hatred, seeing it as it arises in this moment's experience, is, is really the foundations of mindfulness. Can we observe what's arising without judging it, without trying to change it, 
and yet not acting from it, not to act from that expression of hatred. Now, hatred is also one of those interesting things that I, I spent the first talk last month around greed that I gave, just trying to unpack our habitual charge around that word. Because I don't think any of us like to you know, go around saying, hey, I'm greedy, you know, or I have lots of hatred in my heart. You know, it's easy to, to judge that, and that way we don't see it so clearly. So we have to kind of unpack that kind of habitual judgment, that habitual way of, of friction around those different qualities so we can actually see them and understand them. And this is an essential aspect of mindfulness. The mindfulness doesn't care really what's arising in this moment. It's, it's a quality that actually holds whatever it is, whether it's greed, whether it's hatred, whether it's joy, peace, joy, you know, happiness, sadness. Mindfulness opens to that whole experience. But mindfulness doesn't just operate by itself. It's part of the eightfold path. So you have these other path factors around wise view, wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort. Wise mindfulness and wise concentration. All of these work together. One teacher was had this, this I think, very helpful instruction. Because we're sitting meditating and something arises in our experience, or we're just out in the world. Maybe it's a moment of hatred arises. The fact that it had arisen has already been kind of preconditioned based on our history, based on our different experiences. For whatever reason, it's very complex, that moment of hatred arises. You don't have to judge yourself for the hatred arising. If you judge yourself, it's like you're, you've got a knot and you decide to put glue on it to try to untie it. You just make it tighter and tighter. It gets more entrapped, more stuck. Right? So when you see that hatred arising, okay, no need to judge yourself for it arising. That allows us to shift into mindfulness. Right? And how we act from that moment that is our responsibility. How we act from that expression, that anger that arises, can we act as skillfully as we can? That's why when we do some of the equanimity phrases of the Brahma Viharas, there's one phrase that, you know, your happiness is not dependent upon my wishes for you. It's really dependent upon your actions. But one of the five wise reflections, the daily reflections around Really, we're only, our only possessions are our actions, is our karma. It's another way of saying actions and karma. That creates a momentum for how the future unfolds for us. Again, it's not a one-to-one ratio. It's very complex. But I think we all know this. If we act in a habitual way, it's, you know, it's going to tend to follow that habit in the future. So in a moment of hatred arises, we meet it with as much mindfulness and clarity as we can And we also really watch how we act from it. Can we act in a way that starts to unpack it, that starts to change it from being driven by ignorance to actually being a gateway into wisdom, into understanding. That's the key piece of the the homework I'm offering for you this week. And the fundamental piece is that sense of hatred so easy to hate the fact that we have hatred, right? To hate that hate our hatred. But as, as Martin Luther King's famous speech, Loving Your Enemies, he said that returning hate for hate multiplies hate, added deeper darkness to a night already devoid, devoid of stars. 
Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So as we first check our attitude on how we're relating to to it, now let's dive into it a little bit more. I want to use the sutta from the the Buddha's time called the simile of the saw. When he's really addressing this whole idea of hatred, particularly around speech and how we sometimes people speak to us in ways that are harsh, untrue, that trigger us. But how do we meet that? That's what I mean by that. You may have that arising of, of dislike and, and unpleasantness and even hatred, but how you act from that, that's really what, what matters. So let's explore that a little bit. This is really about that, that balancing act between acknowledging hatred and yet not acting from it. And remember, mindfulness, again, is supported by all these other path factors, by wise wisdom, by wise intention, wise view, wise action. So in this sutta, the Buddha is explaining this fine line between not repressing and denying anger, but yet not acting from it. And kind of the danger if we act from it, if we repress it, it tends to come out in a sideways way. And he has some, some beautiful uh, story and an, some analogies with how we can practice with that. And he's really talking about non-self in a way that he doesn't actually mention it. This is, from my opinion or my sense of it, is he's speaking about another pathway toward awakening through, through metta, actually. Or how do we use metta in a way that's coming from a deep place of emptiness, of non-self? And these, these metaphors draw from the stillness of nature as a way of teaching us. So the context of the sutta, again, he's talking to some monks who probably got upset about something someone said to them and how they've responded to some harshness or some criticism or maybe some, some lying in a way that was also harsh that came out of a place of hatred. So he starts by telling this little story. There's this, 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 uh, this woman who had some servants. And this one particular servant, Kelly, was very diligent. She was deaf and needed her work. And this, this, uh, this mistress, this, this woman, Lady Vidahika, had this kind of, a, kind of reputation of being very calm. She was even-tempered, gentle, and calm. So the servant wondered, is that really true or is that just a show maybe i'll test her a little bit so what she did is she got up late she didn't wake up when she was supposed to and so of course this mistress got really upset and said you know why why are you sleeping in no reason no reason so the mistress got really upset said you know got up and scowled angered and just displeased but then this this cali this servant said yeah anger is present in my lady without showing and not absent. You know, when I test her a little bit, this anger kind of flares up. It's not just because my need is my work is need and the anger is present. My lady doesn't show; it's actually there. So why don't I test her some more? So the next day, she also gets up late. So this enrages the the mistress even more. You know, why why are you getting late? And no reason, right? So anger shows up, and this the servant for some reason does it a third time, and this time the the lady blew, blows her cool and takes a rolling pin and 
hits her and cuts her head. And the servant goes running out saying with her head bleeding, see ladies, this gentle one's, the gentle one's handiwork. See the even tempered one's handiwork. See the calm one's handiwork. So basically proving that this, her mistress really wasn't as calm and collected as she pretended to be. So this, you know, he's talking to some monks who you have this, you know, you're supposed to be calm. You're supposed to be collected. And, but your inner experience may be very different from that. So he's pointing to, the Buddha's pointing to how we, I think all of us or many of us, we have this idea that this is how I should be in the world. This is my, my ideal, or this is my reputation, or this is how I want to present myself. And if the internal experience is opposite of that, then we're going to tend to repress them. This is, you know, it's common when we have that spiritual identity or religious identity, and we want to be you know, nice and kind, but inside we're just kind of raging with anger. And if we get tested a little bit, it comes out that way. And then we get upset, get guilty. And we do that as much in this tradition as any tradition. You know, we're trying to, we have so much modeling of being noble silence and being calm and non-harsh speech and all this stuff. And what do we do with all that harshness that's inside of us? What do we do with all that conditioning that just wants to kind of explode out? If we repress it, the Buddha is saying, that's not going to work. It's going to come out sideways, it's going to come out in a way that's not so helpful. So the Buddha then gives these, this is the, the heart of the instructions, I feel. He's saying, okay, this is how you practice with it. This is how you learn to work with it. And he, you know, being a, a monastic monk, monk in that day and age, they spent a lot of time outdoors. You know, they, they walked around and they sat under trees to meditate. They didn't have as many buildings and shelters as we do now. So I think there's a much deeper resonance with nature. But we can tap into that even now in this, this modern age. So he's teaching how this inner stillness of, of nature actually resonates with our own inner stillness. Because when you look at a tree or you look at the sky, there's not this sense of some self coming back at you. And yet there's, you can sense into a presence of nature, this sense of stillness, a sense of something that's there. But yet it doesn't have a lot of opinions about you. It doesn't care if you wore that kind of shirt or that kind of blouse today. It just holds you. It doesn't matter if you're having a hard day, if you're upset, if you're angry, if you're sad. Nature just allows you to be yourself. It's such, it was such a refuge for myself as a, as a young person in my, my, young, my younger years and to this day. So Buddha is trying to point toward how this we can kind of tap into it. He's really talking about non-self in relationship to anger, but not from using those words. So he makes this example. So suppose there's a person comes around with a hoe and a basket saying, I will make this great earth be without earth. Okay, I'm going to take my shovel. I'm going to take my hoe and this basket. I'm going to take all the earth out and get rid of it. Right, I'm going to scatter. I'm going to dig here and there, scatter soil here and there, spit and there, urinate here and there, saying, be without earth, be without earth. Now, what do you think? Would he make this great earth be without earth? It's, it's obviously the, the monks say, no, Lord. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and enormous. It can't easily be made to be without earth. The man would only reap only a share of weariness 
and disappointment. So what the Buddha is saying is, okay, notice how earth has this vastness to it. Even though we may want to get rid of it, the earth or damage it, there's this expression of the soil that's so vast. And so this is how we should practice. That our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We remain sympathetic to that person's welfare with a mind of goodwill, with no inner hate. We'll keep pervading him with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Okay, this is the metta. Metta in the original suttas wasn't like, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. It was just radiate metta in this direction, radiate in that direction. That was the way it was, it was expressed and taught. So beginning with that person, we'll keep permeating an all-encompassing world with awareness imbued with goodwill equal to the great earth. I love this. Imagine that the earth is expressing that, that metta. And the earth doesn't care who walks on it. It doesn't have that preference or that judgment or that distinction. It just meets, the, it meets everything with a quality of expanse. So be like the great earth, abundant, expansive, measurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. That is how you should train yourselves. So we'll get to how, how we actually do this. But I want to bring this, this element of, of that stillness. Okay, this is going completely opposite of that core delusion of separation, of isolation. Okay, this vastness, this interconnection of the earth is a way of expressing this wisdom of non-separation. It's expressing the wisdom of, of non-self, which is not a sense of annihilation, but it's actually rejoining into to the interconnection of all things. And the Buddha goes on with a couple more analogies. One is around taking dye. Like, in fact, I don't know much, most of these words, like lac and yellow, orpment, indigo, or chrism, chrism saying, I will draw pictures in space. I'll make pictures appear. And what do you think? We'll be able to draw pictures in space and make pictures appear. So take your paintbrush and try to draw in, in space. It has no, space has absolutely nothing it can stick to. It just falls away. So why is that? Why won't that work? Because space is formless and featurelessness. It's not easy to draw pictures there and make them appear. So then, Practicing metta, pervading the all-encompassing world with awareness imbued with goodwill, equal to space, abundant, expansive, and measurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. So one way to start to practice with this is when you find that really strong gripping of hatred, or even I'm a big believer in practicing in small ways. So instead of like when you really can't, you're just seeing red, you can't have any kind of perspective. Just that little bit of irritation. You know, someone cut you off in traffic or someone cut your line or something like that. See if you can hold that with the spaciousness of, of the air. See if you can have the earth teach you how to hold that. So it's really taking that small container, which is a hallmark of that sense of self. I am struggling with this. I have this opinion. I hate this. To space simply holding this. And allow matter to flow into that, come from that place of spaciousness, of emptiness, of stillness. 
And the final analogy that the Buddha uses is that suppose a person were came, came along with a burning grass torch and saying, with this burning grass torch, I'll heat up the river Ganges and make it boil. Okay, go out to the Columbia, our, our nearest big river, we want to make it boil with one single torch. Of course, the torch will not, not go very well. We're just going to, will, will that work? He asked the monks. And they say no, because the river Ganges is deep and enormous. It's not easy to heat it up and make it boil with a burning grass tor- torch. Right? So then practicing metta from that perspective, abundant, expansive, and measurable. And, and this, each of these elements, there's the solidity of the earth, the vastness of it, how you can relax into it. There's the spaciousness of the air. And then with the river, there's a sense of flow, this ongoing flow, this grow, flow of impermanence, things arising and passing away. And if you can feel the power of that. So finally, the sutta ends with a final strong encouragement around not acting from anger. The Buddha says, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb with a two-handed saw, be among you who lets his heart get angered, even at that would not be doing my bidding. Right? So that's a pretty high bar. You're being strapped down and bandits are cutting you from limb to limb. If you got angry at them, the Buddha says, you're not, you're not following my teaching. Right? So I think sometimes the Buddha would really kind of make his point in a very strong way to kind of shock us out of it. But imagine this, if this hatred, because I think, you know, our, our um, Sangha, for the most part, tends to be a little bit more liberal-minded. And there may be a particular politician that you kind of love to hate, not to say anyone's names, but there's sometimes, it's like you feel justified in that hatred. You feel that, you know, I really want that. Sometimes step back a little bit and just notice how that creates a sense of division, of separation. It's not about condoning someone's actions. It's not about excusing it. It's not about accountability. It's really about our own hearts and that sense of separation that happens. So this is really the, the kind of the investigation way of working with, with hatred or any of these, these topics. Instead of thinking, I should be this way, notice how you are and explore it, open to it. Let your, your mind and heart really take that in. And you start to see how when you're really held in a sense of hatred towards someone or something, it's actually very painful inside your heart. You feel that sense of separation, of isolation. From delusion's perspective, that's great news because you're a really well-established, upset kind of person. From delusion's goal, if you will, is to keep us stuck in this cycle of, of suffering. Keep us stuck in the cycle of separation. So how do we work with hatred? So many ways we can talk about it, but I'll offer a few ways. This is really mirrored in the homework that hopefully you got online if I sent that off to you or you got it to you. So first one is to meet the hatred with a quality of compassion. To view it as a form of suffering, that compassion is this this willingness to turn toward, to be next to. So depending on how hot it is, I may not like be right next to it. I might be like, okay, it's it's over there. I'm kind of, know it's there, but I'm not going to overly 
lose myself in the charge of it. So there's this discernment about how charged it is, but I'm acknowledging that it's there. I'm feeling it, I'm sensing it, I'm opening to it. Now, hatred, especially if we have a lot of external hatred, this is probably, it's probably absolutely true, but I'll hold it as a probably true for your investigation. How much can we really hate someone else if we don't have that internal hatred for ourselves in some way? That sense of internal judgment, internal criticism. And often when we find someone's externally criticizing, there's that internal critic is even more harsh. So this is this compassion. So let me meet this pain that's here. Let me open to it. Now, hatred also sometimes is a way of responding to danger. You know, we feel attacked, so we kind of lash out. So there's, we have to also have that discernment about when is that helpful? When is that having good boundaries? When is that caring for ourselves? And I think often hatred is really also coming from the sense of being hurt being hurt by someone else's actions, maybe being misunderstood, being unacknowledged, the sense of you know, how you're powerless in relationship to someone else's actions. So again, as we started this talk, is just meeting with mindfulness. doesn't matter what's there, but does matter, can you observe it? Can you open to it? Can you sense it? Can you let it be known? Can you let it be known with as much wisdom and compassion as possible? One trick that's often helpful is going back to, to Vedana, the Ved- teachings around Vedana or feeling tone. So feeling tone is not around the emotional tone, but it's around this almost instantaneous flavoring that we attribute to any experience as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right? So Vedana is different from what grows from Vedana, which is often our reactivity, our disliking, our liking our hatred, our greed, all that grows from a moment of Vedana. But Vedana is almost this, it is kind of this conditioned thing that we have been programmed to perceive experience in a certain way. You're sitting, your legs are hurting, you hear the bell. A lot of people are going to say, oh, that's a pleasant Vedana, because that means I get to get up. We jump into what it means, but the very instant of hearing it, we register, ah, or maybe the meditation is going so deep, you feel like I'm about to be awake, about to awaken here. And you hear the bell, it's like, oh, darn, I need a little bit more time. Right? So it's that conditioning that happens. And it changes over time. It changes with our, our practice. But when we're feeling that sense of being really charged or angry towards someone, step back a little bit and just notice, just acknowledge, oh, this is unpleasant. This is unpleasant. There's the actual hatred that's unpleasant. There's also the thing that's triggering it that's unpleasant. So you come back to that, just that highlighting that very quality, that feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant. In this case, sometimes doing that, it just starts to bring a little bit more spaciousness around. So metta is another way to practice with it. So I kind of gave the 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 sutta way of using metta as this almost wordless emanating from, this emanating from a place of stillness, from this the vastness of nature, or vastness of earth, of the air, of the Ganges River, that kind of quality of, of metta just going out, 
And you can also use the more uh, formal way of practicing it that came a little bit later after the Buddhist time. And that's with those phrases. I remember being um, in the hospital once with my wife who was having an emergency situation arising. And it was, you know, in the ER and it's late at night and the ER is busy with, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And you're like waiting and, you know, I was getting very frustrated. I thought, okay, I'm going to try meditating, being a good meditator. So I tried to breathe. I tried to feel my breath, but my attention was so scattered, so charged by that situation. I felt like I couldn't make any contact with my breath. I felt like I was dropping water on a hot skillet. We just kind of... I said, well, maybe I should try metta. And and to that point, I really, to be honest, didn't really like metta that much. I always felt a little bit like this kind of boring, imposed, hard labor, like maybe safe, maybe protected, falling asleep, maybe safe. But I tried doing metta, and I was very surprised how the intention behind metta allowed me to actually engage and be present in that moment. You know, may my wife, maybe she be safe and protected. May all the caregivers be safe and protected. So metta is one of those things that the Buddha would often use when people had fear. We can think of hatred, anger as fear is the flip side of fear. They become very related. Sometimes when we're really fearful, we become very angry. So he would use that as an antidote. You know, story of, of monks trying to practice in a kind of a spooky woods with ghosts and spirits. I didn't like the monks being there. We're scaring them. And the Buddha said, go back and practice, practice metta. And by doing that, they're able to, their hearts are able to calm. They're able to be centered. So metta can be very powerful in relationship to, to hate and energy like hatred. Offering metta to yourself, metta to the other person. And remembering metta has this quality, this capacity to transform itself based on what it's meaning. If it's meaning Something that's suffering, it switches to compassion. Just now, you don't have to do anything with it. It just changes to compassion. Sympathetic joy, if there's some success or joy. And then finally, start to notice hatred when it arises as a way of generating this sense of self or creating this sense of me, this sense of I, and how the suffering is really tied to that. Right? So this is a much deeper way of working with it, of course. And to do that, we have to be willing to kind of de-invest, divest our, our energy, our belief in the content of that hatred. Right? If we focus on the particulars, on that person and how terrible they are, we're just keeping ourselves tied to it. And we have to switch to something like metta, kind of give our minds something to do. If we're able to kind of set aside that particulars, the content, and instead open to the almost generic expression of hatred, feeling as a body experience, which part of your body specifically is tight with that anger, with that hatred. How does it change your, your mental perspective? How does it change your heart? What's, what's all that's going on here? There's a lot going on when we're feeling anger and hatred. And then you step back even further and see how that has this effect of creating that sense of self. Next time you're really angry or caught in hatred, just step back and say, how established am I? How much do I know who I am and who that other person is? It's like it's, it's like a, 
idiotic question because of course I'm here and the other person is there. It's so solidified. It's so strong. And that's really the heart of the Dharma student is to learn to see that solidity and actually learn to see through that, to see the, the falling away of that, to see the emptiness underneath that. So hatred, again, a charged topic. It's a very natural part of being human. The Buddha was very strong about, you know, observe it, know it, don't repress it, and also don't act from it. Right? So this is a, it's a practice. Be gentle with yourself. You're going to fall down many times in that. And that's part of, you know, ideally as, as a sangha, we get to kind of share those, those stumbling blocks and also those ways that we learn to see through it. And realize that hatred is just a way of expressing ultimately that sense of separation, a sense of isolation. It's a way of tying us into selfing, which is a way of tying us in to suffering. All right. So let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. And then I'll talk about the homework and offer some responses to questions. So the homework. So again, there's some sheets over there by the Donna baskets and also online. They're practicing with acknowledging the energy of hatred balanced with the clear intention not to act from that hatred. Okay, this is this is actually fairly huge. Right? Can we fully acknowledge that I'm feeling hatred right now? At the same time, uncoupling the impulse to act from greed and hatred are so tricky because they, they really are turbocharging us into action. We're seeking what we want in greed. We're attacking and pushing away what we hate. It's so charged to action. Christina Feldman, sometimes we talk about mindfulness as this way of slowing down this reactivities, giving a little bit of a pause. So it's like instead of being going so fast, we have a little bit of space between it. It allows us to start to act in a more wise way. And so three approaches I'll, I'll suggest or offer from the talk. So first of all, bring compassion to the underlying pain of the hatred, right? So there's, there's often, there's probably always pain in that. Hatred is an expression of some way to cope with this pain that I'm feeling. Maybe turn toward the pain itself. Feel that. Doesn't mean you won't have to act. You won't have to be skillful, courageous, and wise in your actions. We're talking about learning to be clear about what's actually here. Because if we're not clear about the pain that we're feeling, our actions are going to be a little distorted or sometimes a lot distorted. Offer metta to yourself and the object of your hatred. Okay, this is hard, right? Because I, you know, you hate, you're almost like you're doing uh, opposite of metta in our minds, right? We're just reflecting on how much we dislike this person. Try offering, reflecting that they too wish to just be happy. Just like you want to be happy, how you want to have ease in your life. They too, that's ultimately what they want. They may be going very confused about how they're seeking it, how they're trying to find it, but that's that's the ultimate thing. So when I often often met when I offer meta to someone like that, I'm saying, May you find that that way of really true happiness, of true peace. And finally, sense the self-making power of hatred. 
sense the self-making power, how the mechanism of creating this sense of self, how you feel really established. Don't jump into changing it or fixing it, but just notice, well, I feel so intact right now. I really know who I am. The sense of I is like solid. Right? And then you can ask, where is that located? Where does it reside? Then it helps you start to relax into the stillness, which is much more what you really are. All right. So next week, I won't be here. Someone else is going to be teaching. I forget if it's, do you remember, Cheryl? <laughs> it's either Twery or one of the LDLs. Yeah, someone will be here. So they have another talk. So I won't be able to, to digest this homework with you, but I think it's a, it'd be a fun one to explore. And I do mean it'd be fun. It's fun. If you can make this kind of homework exploring hatred fun, Dharma would be much lighter and it'll open up much, much smoother for you. So we have a chance for any questions you might have for sharing. For those online, you can, you're welcome just to raise your, your virtual hand. If you raise your physical hand, it might just take me a moment to find it. And those in person, you can raise your physical hand. And we have a uh, mic here so I can hear you online. All right, you mind coming up here so they can hear you? Yeah, right there, you can grab that mic. I'm wondering how should how should a practitioner uh, deal with evil people who are considered evil people, murderers and all that group of people? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the heart of this question that the Buddha was trying to, trying to address in this, this sutta. Is like, and I think that the key thing is that how we, um, how we hold them in our hearts is different than how we act, you know, act in relationship to them. So you can still have really clear boundaries. You can have very clear ways of preventing them from causing harm to other people. When you have that sense of, of, of really hating the one that's evil, that creates that inner, inner pain. I remember um, Sandy Hook, you know, when that happened, you know, yeah, my, my, it was actually my daughter's birthday. And so it's luckily she was too young to be exposed to that. But I remember just, you know, hearing the news and just feeling the tremendous pain around that. And also feeling the pain of that individual, how much you know, hurt they must have had in their own heart to, to kill so many people. And so, but that's not, you know, it's not saying that I wouldn't do everything I could to prevent that from ever happening or take any means of that. So see how the, the paradox is? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like if you had a, you know, if you had an insect attacking you, you don't have to hate the insect, but you can protect yourself. Yeah. See the distinction is, yeah. It's probably harder to do, to put into practice, but I think. Yes. It's like being vigilant. It's like watching what's going on, I guess, and not going anywhere with it. You're just. Yes. Yes. You're watching it arise and there's yet clarity of how you act. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for that question. All right, what else is out there? All right, Valerie, go ahead. Hi, thank you very much for um, the talk. That was wonderful. Um, I, last month I did a retreat and uh, some emotions came up with uh, betrayals. Uh, There was a betrayal of 
a friend who I've known for 20 years and they continue to lie to me for multiple years. And, uh, and I've worked with that emotion. I, I sense the pain, uh, the Vedna that comes up repeatedly. I've been dealing with this for a couple of years. Um, and at that point I can send meta and understanding to why this person performed those actions. And, and every time um, I could, send that love and radiation radiation of love towards them but at times I still feel that sense of difficulty and there's still some attachment towards that the action that was very painful and sadness comes up definitely I still hold that sense of sadness like a child that's in pain you know but no matter what it, it's still there that's that sense of pain is constantly being rubbed and so I don't know what else to do I guess, to, to work with that emotion. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that Valerie. And it also just highlights that it's, you know, the Buddha can put this sutta out there, but it's maybe working with these, some things for years. It's this process of deepening. I I remember being feeling very hurt by a group of people. I really held dear to me and it's, it's taken years. I mean, years to unpack that and see it. And, it's often like, I think it's often like we can only open so much at a time. It's almost this process of opening and there's deeper opening. But I found that often what happens when it maintains itself is that there's some aspect of it that we're not fully seeing or acknowledging around it. Right. And so, you know, for my, like for this situation, for myself, there was just really, you know, going through all the pain of it and all the anger and all the resentment and, sadness and all that saying, Oh, you know, there's my side of it. This is what I, I did to really, it took a long time to really acknowledge that, to let that in. And it's, it, there's no particular recipe. I wish I could give you, here's the 10 steps and you'll be free of it. It's like, it starts, you, you just keep noticing. It's almost like you're trying to see it in a different way. What's not seen about this. You're not in a judgmental way. It's, it's really, we have this almost this unconscious wave of delusion that's obscuring how we can perceive. And that's the good news is that we're actually seeing more and more clearly. And at some point you see it. So in a way that it actually drops away from you. So all the work that you've done and trying to, to send meta and, and trying to understand this and all that, that's all very helpful. It helps to you know, loosen up the charge. And yet there's still a piece of it that's still, Basically, it's believed in. And that, that part of belief, that's really what creates that sense of you and other person, that sense of separation. And that's ultimately what we, we work with. And, and that actually seems through. And the pain is, this is it's actually a, a terrible gift, but it's a beautiful gift, too, because if you see it, that, that kind of depth of that, there's a way that it just it falls away. And it, it just doesn't come up in the same power. It may you know, be charged here and there, but it Elusive. So I guess that's that's a big thing I would suggest is see what's not acknowledged, you know, in a deeper way without any judgment about not seeing it. See how can I open to this as fully as I can, and also notice how that has this way of creating that sense of you, you in relationship to this person that's hurt you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. All right. So Leslie, you like to go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, let me unraise my hand. 
Um, this is a really timely conversation. Um, so thank you. Um, I have, uh, I would say, you know, everything you're saying makes sense to me, but I'm not quite in terms of like, so if you're interacting with somebody and hatred comes up, um, everything you're telling me saying makes sense for something that I could potentially do after like a fight or something like that. But so like there's a, a member of my family who I adore and I love, and I think the world of her, but like siblings, they can push your buttons like no other. And it's probably uh, when we fight, it is the worst feeling in the world. And it probably feels, it's probably more anger than anything, but it definitely masks as hate. And I don't feel that very often. I'm, I don't feel that feeling very often at all, except with her and maybe like other people close to me. And to try and the, the, the concept of trying to practice what you're talking about when I'm in the middle of it just seems so inconceivable to me because although I've spent many years trying to like learning how to manage my emotions and so that I'm not going to fly off the handle and say something that I'll regret. I still can't think of anything else, but this horrible feeling that's inside. And what can you do? Like when you're in that moment um, to help just at least the current situation, when you're dealing with that hatred and anger and. Yeah. Thank you for, Asking that, it's I think a common experience. Certainly, I can relate to that. And it, it's true that when we're in those kind of challenging relationships and ones that have that kind of um, what's it called the the kind of express lane into our most our our buttons, all our archaic wounding, you just know how to charge those up. In the midst of it, like we can get charged so quickly, so reactive, so quickly, we really lose that capacity. So what I, I would suggest in the midst of it is as much as you can try to, to notice your, your habits and see if you can interrupt that. Like there's probably a, a habitual way that you and your, your family member get into it and maybe saying, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom or I'm going to go take a walk. You just sometimes like that, that interrupts it. And that being said, I think really what really starts to shift it is kind of after those situations, and it's, I can tell that it's, that's an alive experience for you when you reflect on it, do the same process that we've been talking about. You know, almost like you, you kind of bring that right into the meditation, right into your the power of investigation. You know, just feel that, that, that deep feeling that it seems so painful. Okay, relax with it. When your loved one is not around you, you can open to it. You don't have to react to them. You don't have to respond. And that starts to allow you to see it more and more fully, more clearly. And in the depths of it, like with, with Valerie, you know, you can start to see the different strata. And a lot of it really comes down to what do you believe is true? You know, what do you believe is true? And then saying, is that really true? <laughs> you actually start to question that. Because, you know, like most of us, as we grow up, we, we form what, an idea of what's true in relationship to our, our parents, to our siblings. And we, it seems it has a strong and conscious belief in it. You start to see it from meditation perspective. You see, oh, that's just a thought that I believed in. So by kind of working with it outside of that situation, the next time it arises, 
you can start to catch it much sooner because you basically, you know, it's a strong pattern. It's a very deep, painful pattern. But luckily, it's a very dis- discreet pattern. So you can know when you're going to be with that person. You can uh, compare, prepare how your habits go into it. You get to really have compassion for all those aspects of yourself. And for myself, and I know many people I've, I've talked to and worked with, they just find that spontaneously they relate differently to that loved one and over time. It's like there's different things. It's like basically there's like cogs in a wheel. Those cogs start to get disengaged. They can feel, here's the invitation to, to do the cog thing. And you just, you realize, oh, I don't have to do that. I can actually act in a different way. And so over time, you start to find the charge becomes less and less. And it's almost like without even intentionally trying it, you just, through the power of observation, you start to unhook that pattern. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I feel like... With this last fight, it was very much, um, it felt very much like um, I was finally able to do that for the first time, like a little, little, little bit, and at least reflect on like why I was feeling like that when I felt like our relationship had so much improved. Um, But yeah, I think this will, this will be an interesting exercise. (laughs) That's right. That little sliver of doing it differently, that's, that's that's really should be hopeful for you. That should give you a lot of inspiration. And, you know, depending on your, on seems like you care about this person, maybe have a conversation directly about it. It's like, I want to talk about how, why we fight. I want to talk about, you know, the harm I've caused you, you know, that can really also start to transform it. Yeah. And we actually did do that for the first time. And uh, this last fight. And, and honestly, I, I kind of feel like, you know, it's, being here and being part of this meditation group that has kind of allowed that. So. Yes. Yes. It's, that's, that's how it works. That's a really application of the practice and so needed. And and I've seen hundreds of people do the same work you're doing and it transforms them. All right. How about here back in the room? Yes. You might come in up so they can hear you. Hi, I just, um, I actually wanted to respond to the person who was just speaking, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't see your name. So I apologize, but Leslie, um, one thing that, um, that I have internalized over time with really strong emotions that somebody taught me is that, um, it's fundamentally and first it's a physical reaction. It's actually, you know, a set of habits informed by chemicals and, um, the lifespan of any strong emotion is 90 seconds um, unless we reinvest, mm-hmm. unless we reinvest in that. And one way that um, I've found a way to step back from it and be able to observe it is literally to look at a watch for 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can feel if you're going, yeah, but then you really, and then you get that thump and then you've started over again and <laughs> you have mm-hmm. to kind of reset. Um, but it, it's, uh, and I don't, I know it, it, feels like a, you know, a spiritual (laughs) experience, but it's, it's also physical and, Mm -hmm. and observing that um, helps to create enough space to, um, to start to live into what we're learning from it. So. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I've heard that that no emotion can last more than 90 seconds. 
but that's yeah that's i like how you explain that there's just this chemical cascade that's going through our system and we have it's like it has its own kind of lifespan and if we're able just to step back and let it kind of do its thing without adding to it that's probably the hardest part yeah but yeah that's the reinvestment the reinvestment <laughs> yeah and that's and it's a process and we get better with it as we practice it more and more all right so 90 second timer we could sell those on Thanksgiving time and <laughs> all the family holiday times. <laughs> a mindful timer for 90 seconds. Yes, come on up and then we can, we can get you next. Um, so sort of on the same topic of families and conflict and anger coming up with families, um, I have a lot of family members that haven't done the same amount of personal work to try to break habits and to try to see the emotions that come up and to try to disengage. And I'm just wondering if you have any advice or tips about people that haven't, that you love and you care about and you want to resolve conflict and break patterns and work through these big emotions Mm -hmm. with that don't have the same level of interest necessarily or ability to see their own emotions and how to kind of, you know, with, I ask them to come to meditate, but they won't do it. You know, things like that, where it's more in the time, in the conversations, how to get them to see some of these things that we talk about in a way that's not as requiring them to come on Monday nights or right, meditate yeah. together. Yeah. Thank you. So that's yeah, common, common thing. How do we work with people who are not in some, some ways we can think of it. They're not as if we're not careful, not as evolved of us or as spiritual us or as emotionally mature, or intelligent, all those, those kind of perspectives come up. I, I, I use it basically as a way of practicing. You know, how can I monitor my own experience? Because sometimes kind of the, the kind of pitfall is that I feel like I'm, I'm more emotionally adept, and, but then I get triggered and I don't acknowledge that, that I can really get, get over my head, right? Before I know it, I'm like blowing up. But if I can, okay, I'm getting a little triggered, use that, those skills. Like, okay, here, how can I take care of my own self, my own heart, as well as I can? Because that's going to allow you to be the most clear-headed. That the person may be wanting to, hey, let's dance the tango of, of hatred here. And like, oh, I'm just going to sit this one out. So you can learn how to, to graciously do that. And I think it's also helpful to, to reflect on the equanimity phrases that you know, people have their own timing of their lessons, basically. You can't force someone to have their own the learning. They have to have whatever conditions have to come together. And you can think of it yourself as just being a model. You know, how can I, you know, be as clear-headed as I can, as kind as I can? And they'd be like, wow, you know, you're acting really differently than you used to. And then there's that, it's just like they need, they need kind of something to bounce off of. You don't give the same thing to bounce off of. They have to change in some way. And they might be find their own way of maybe it's a different tradition or a different process or a different therapy process, but they're they're finding their own way. So it's a lot of it is like, okay, I'm gonna let them have their own timing, you know, love them for how they are, see you see underneath all this stuff and see the suffering underneath that. Sometimes you can redirect it's like, well, that sounds really hard when they're used to having you, you know, throw up your fists. And that's that changes it too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. All right, so Alan, let me get this other person in the room and then we'll come to you.
Um, yeah, thank you for your talk today. And um, I felt really relevant, like a lot of people are saying. Um, I had a panic attack earlier today while I was at work. And it was so challenging uh, and triggering. And I really resonated with what you said about being in the ER. And it's just like sitting with my breath was not going to work. Mm-hmm. And I will try Meta next time. But, um, you know, I made, I made some decisions and my choices and I think, and how I, I dealt with that. And I think in my, if I were like, I have this judgment that if I were the most spiritually evolved, I would have just been able to sit with it and handle it and keep doing the responsibilities I had that day. And what I ended up doing was calling my supervisor, explaining how I was feeling, getting support, telling my coworkers and feeling more connected to people, but then also feeling like, like a failure in some way, mm. like way or like I, yeah should have done it differently or if I had worked harder or had been more yeah, emotionally evolved. And so I think my question is, I, I really heard what you said in, in your talk about, you know, it's, it's about presence, but it's also about right action. And so how do we, and also hearing that these things evolve over time and, and it can, I appreciate that it can take years to move through some hard emotions. Um, but how do we, how do we know right action when it comes without mm-hmm. being judgmental of our experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you know right action when it comes without being judgmental of what's, what's arising? I think a good rule of thumb is anytime you think you should be other than you are, it's probably not good to follow that to say, okay, because that's a secondary thing. I mean, we're going to think, oh, I should be this way and that way. And it's, it's, I mean, it is like we have this painful knot in our string and we just add a glue to it by saying, okay, I'm denying the fact that I'm this way, right? And it's, there's so much, I think that's one of the, the biggest, I don't know if it's biggest, but a significant stumbling block for people is that they think we should be, we should be a certain way because we're practitioners, right? And we forget there's all these very skillful things like you talk to your supervisor and you made some hard conversations and you felt more connected in the end. So that tells you that's the answer for your right question, right action is you notice by the effects of it. You know, what's the effects internally? What's the effects with externally? And it may not be perfect, but like, oh yeah, I feel more connected than I did. Right. So that's, that was a, a wise action. And it's, it's like, it's a process, right? It's not going to be like perfect all the time, but you and you're always learning. And so what I do is I'm, I'm noticing What's my natural habit of mind, my tendency? Is there any kind of secondary belief or judgment I shouldn't be the way I am? And try to check all that at the door, saying, okay, I'm feeling this way. My habit is to not do this. And then maybe my habit is to talk to my supervisor or have a conversation and work with it that way. And that's all, that's really a nitty gritty way of, of using wise action. Yeah, so... But the main thing is anytime you feel that I should be something else that just uh, this way of using Dharma against ourselves, because mm-hmm. we can get this kind of can be really extreme. Sometimes I can't have these emotions. I can't have this experience. And yet that experience is right there. I don't know if you're here a few last time I talked, I gave a shared a poem about the, um, the person trying to get rid of greed and this other thing came up and try to get rid of that, you know, hatred and this other thing came up. It's like we, it's like we're, something has to arise itself or show itself. Instead, if we just allow it all to be there, be known, and then what's the, what's our heart say? What's the, the best action I can do right now? And notice how the responses are. It's like, oh, I'm getting, this is not working. Relax again. Start again.
Yeah. And definitely the trick of that being like the worry is, oh, I, I did those actions to get away from the fear. And now mm. I feel relief. And this was running away from that. Mm. Um, but I appreciate that you're saying like, yeah, if there's more connection, like this is, that's on the way of like where you want to be going. And yeah. yeah so running, so running away from the fear is where you're, you're afraid it was happening. Mm-hmm. And that was because you felt like you were avoiding it. Or if you were a better practitioner, you wouldn't, you would just go right into the fear. Yeah. Yeah. That I could just, I could just hang there with it yeah. and be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, again, that going back to that, that secondary opinion of how you should be. So the fear, you know, fear is, you know, we talked about it from the perspective of hatred, but that's also just a natural message to us too. That sometimes this is really, we need to, to take, you know, skillful actions. We need to maybe talk to our supervisor, <clears throat> just like you did, get support. So respect the fear too. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, Alan, do you still have your question? Yeah, sure, Tim. Um, and maybe following up there with um, the idea of I should be something else and kind of the, the difference between what is coming up and present and what I want to be present. Somewhere, somewhere on that theme, um, letting what is being there be known um, kind of counterintuitive to me. Um, I recently discovered that I had been, um, storing in a lot of anger. Um, and that was, um, kind of, uh, in a strange way causing like hatred. Um, meaning that, you know, the way I was growing up, the way I was raised, you couldn't be, you couldn't express the anger that was present. You couldn't, you couldn't let that be known. Um, so what would happen is I'd get into situations with people close to me where, um, you know, they, they did things that made me angry, but I was, I was holding this in and, but I would get so over time, there was this hatred that came out because it's, you know, like, you know, that anger just couldn't be expressed. Um, but it's, it seemed when I discovered it so counterintuitive because it's like, wait, wait, I have to voice this anger. Like I have to let, I have to let this anger out. I have to, I have to bring, you know, honesty kind of to the anger that's there by, by letting it be known. Um, and yeah, that's still like, huh, I'm still kind of turned around a little by that. Yeah, thank you, Alan. When I when I talk to students, you know, like when I do interviews or answer questions, and the way I do my own practice is I I'm always kind of sensing where is the rub, what's not being allowed in this moment, right? So that what's not being allowed is often a way of representing kind of the whole structure or mechanism of how we've kind of figured out how to be in the world how we've kind of, at least around that particular thing. It's like this intactness. And that's why it feels like so counterintuitive because to go opposite of that, to release it or to not follow that, you don't know who you are in that moment. You're not as defined. You're not as established in the allenness that all your years have conditioned you to be, right? So that rub, that kind of friction of what we're denying, you know, like the last question with, you know, I can't be afraid or what, all the different permutations, we've heard that throughout the whole night. Yeah. That represents, that's actually, it's really precious because that's, if you look at it the right way, 
it's like we're kind of we're like excavate or um, like a uh, archaeologist. We're seeing this unconscious structure behind underneath us that's kind of driving everything, and and we're saying okay. Maybe it's okay to allow your anger just to be there, to give it a little breath into it. It's like, whoa, because that goes against everything that you've been taught. But from a Dharma perspective, that's helping dissolve the sense of self. From a psychological or therapy standpoint, you know, that is easy to just say, oh, it just opened your anger. But there's often a way that like a good therapist can help you unpack it in a way that's skillful. And many of us, including myself, you know, that's been very helpful to do that, to unpack it from a therapeutic psychological perspective. And then the Dharma perspective is just really once that kind of is that charge is lessened, when there's a sense of kind of fluidity or functionality in life, then the Dharma perspective is going into, okay, how can I, you know, see through the illusion of self in relationship to it? And anything is really showing that illusion. So I think that's, that's kind of what happens is, the counterintuitiveness is like, oh, this is actually, that should become really interesting to you. Like, this is, does that make any sense? Because it's, it's really going against the whole world that you're conditioned to believe is true. Yeah, I, I think that's it. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Alan. All right. So I think we're come to the end of our night. If you have any questions in the room, you're welcome to come up afterwards. And just a couple quick announcements.